<laughs> that was totally me today, but in the future, oh, come on, it was you. Good morning, Ordinary Faith. Bigger than, that's our subject, this series, bigger than, God's bigger than, bigger than our fears, bigger than ourselves, and today we're going to talk about how he's bigger than our enemies. Anybody got any enemies in the house? Are they with you right now? Now you're just making it awkward. So there's a story in the Bible, and by the way, part of this series, one of the, its tasks is to just kind of re-familiarize us a little bit with some of the key stories in the Bible. So we started with creation, and uh, Noah's Ark, Michael dealt with, and uh, we've dealt with uh, other ones that totally slipped my mind all of a sudden. Oh yeah, Jericho last night, the battle for Jericho last week, and today we're going to talk about David and Goliath. And I have a wonderful children's story that I like to tell about David and Goliath, but the last time I did it, I busted my pants, so I'm not doing that again. <laughs> now you're probably sitting there going, well, he just totally ruined the pictures in my mind, and you're welcome. So, that being said, uh, we're just going to jump right in and start with 1 Samuel 17. Goliath stood and shouted a taunt across to the Israelites. Um... Why are you all coming out to fight? He called. I'm the Philistine champion, but you are only the servants of Saul. Choose one man to come down here and fight me. <clears throat> if he kills me, then we will be your slaves. But if I kill him, you'll be our slaves. I defy the armies of Israel today. Send me a man who will fight me. Verse 11 says, When Saul and the Israelites heard this, they were terrified and deeply shaken. Uh, as soon as the Israelite army saw him, they began to run away in fright. Encouraging, huh? How do you fight your battles? That's the, that's the question that's up for our hearts to consider today, is how do you fight your battles? What tools do you use? How do you get into Things that deal with the enemies in life that come in you, come at you, and try to take whatever they can from you. Because in this story, you see one giant in the Philistine army, and, and you see the reactions of one that I call him the orphan king, Saul. Because by this time in Saul's leadership role in his kingship and his rule. He, God had left him because he let, well, let me put it that way. He left God. So God, is, God uh, left the, let the boundary stand, let the consequences stand. And so he's the orphan king. And so when now he, before he would have had God as his strength, now Saul's only got Saul. And his army is Saul's army. That's who the Philistine is provoking. Not the armies of the Lord, the armies of Saul. All's on his own, the orphan king. And then the orphan king rules a bunch of scared soldiers who are fleeing and running in fear. Now, I don't know how you feel about God's people running in fear, but I, I think that's appalling. I think that's terrifying to me to think that God's people would back down from a fight. I know, I know you're probably sitting there going, no, no, Christians are all chill. You and I don't know the same Christians. Anyway... Um, there's, a, there's something in this story that should just provoke us 
like it did the boy David, the shepherd boy. Whenever you read Saul's story and David's story in the Old Testament, in 1 Samuel, you, um, you should remember that Saul and David are both metaphors. They stand for something, those literal metaphors that the Bible's packed with. Saul stands for the flesh. Saul is the guy who's always doing everything that a guy can do in his own power. And that's how we as Christians, if we don't pay attention, if we let ourselves fall into what we know and what we're comfortable with, that's what we'll do. We will do everything. We will handle life in our own strength. And that is never going to work out for a child of God. The Bible says in Romans 8, 7, it says, The sinful nature is always hostile to God. It never did obey God's laws, and it never will. That is the nature that we default into when we're trying to resolve all these problems by ourselves. So, you know, it's easy, though, to read the Old Testament stories and point the finger at them and say, hey, if I were there, I would have done it differently. But here's my question, because I like to poke the bear. I do. Steve's getting tired of it. I'm sorry, I shouldn't have done that. I know I'm going to pay for it. I know I'm going to pay for it. No, I'm going to pay for that. What I want to know, though, is why the church today looks more like Saul's army than Jesus' army. And I want to get past that, and I want to move on. And today we're going to talk about how God's bigger than our enemies, but we're also going to step into a different way to fight a little bit and understanding what, a little bit about what our weapons are. I wish I had a long time to really go into what it's all going to take, I suppose, but, uh, and I will take more than you want me to probably, but nonetheless... Um, we need to start with that idea of thank you. <laughs> what are we afraid of? And we can just think broad for a minute. It's more comfortable. Everybody likes to point fingers at the church until we realize that we are the church. And so when we poke at the church, we're actually just slapping ourselves around. What is it that we're afraid of in this life? Are we afraid of losing our life? Is that, and I'm not talking about, we're probably not afraid that we're going to be uh, martyred or anything at this point. I mean, the day may come, but at this point, we're probably not afraid of that. I think what we're, the life we're afraid of losing is the American fictional dream that we've kind of whipped up. Or some kind of idea of what we think our life should be. Or our hopes that our life will at least be equal to the guy who lives next door to us, not knowing that he's just as mortgaged to the hilt as you are. And so what are we afraid of? Because we're talking today a little bit about, we're back into worldview, obviously. And, and the Bible says this in Matthew. Jesus said, if you cling to your life, you'll lose it. But if you give up your life for me, you'll find it. So if we're afraid of losing our life, we need to step into a Christian, a disciple's worldview, and realize that losing life is part of the deal. The life you expected to have has got to be lost. So you can have something far more complete and far more perfect from God. Amen. Are we afraid of suffering? Obviously, you can look at me and tell I, am, I don't like suffering a whole lot. I'm allergic to pain. It's a strong allergy I have. I take shots for it. I would, but I'm afraid of the shots that hurt. <laughs> First Peter 4.12. Peter tells us, I, I don't know where people get this rose, rosebed mentality of what Christianity should be because it's not in the Bible. Peter said, Dear friends, 
Don't be surprised at the fiery trials you're going through as if something strange were happening to you. I'm just saying, if you're afraid of losing the life you wanted to have, or you're afraid of suffering, those are actually part of the Christian package. It's part of being a disciple. It's worth it, but I'm going to save that for another message. But when you get into the disciples' worldview, uh, we realize that things change. We realize that being a disciple is bigger and stronger and more powerful than anything else. It's like the disciples, okay? Before the cross of Jesus, before the resurrection, I'm sorry, before the day of Pentecost, I'm sorry, I'll get the right day eventually. (laughs) They were just scared dudes. They were afraid of losing their life. They were afraid of suffering. Uh, They were afraid of the Pharisees. They were afraid of everything. And then the Holy Spirit falls, and now they're afraid of nothing. Absolutely nothing. They're fearless at this point. They're stepping out, and they're doing what they couldn't do before. Have you ever realized that that Christianity being illegal has never stopped a disciple of Jesus from either worshiping or witnessing. Amen. Never has. Now you're saying, well, it silenced a lot of Christians. I said disciple. I didn't say Christians. What's the difference? A disciple's actually following Jesus. A disciple actually has seen and heard something. That's what the disciples said. Peter and John are standing before the Pharisees. They're like, hey, shut up. You can't talk about Jesus, more, about Jesus Christ anymore. And Peter and John say, do you think that God wants us to obey you rather than him? We can't stop telling about everything we have seen and heard. Maybe that's what's wrong with a lot of Christian faith is you hadn't seen or heard anything. Ouch. And so when we move into a disciple's worldview, we realize that we find real freedom. Today as we look at this story of David and Goliath, I want to think about the five, six questions here. What can be known? First of all, I want you to see that we, I want you to know the kind of world you actually live in. And this is important because we're making an assumption that's destroying us. I want you to know the kind of world you live in, and I want you to know the kind of God that rules over that world a little bit. I want you to know who God is, and, and for today's purposes, we're going to look at God as the commander king. Okay? The commander king. You're going to look at who you are, and you'll find out today that you are a warrior. I am a warrior. I'm not just a pacifist. I'm not a spectator. I'm not watching the game of God happen. I am a warrior in the, the battle, in the fray. Then we're also going to discuss what is good, or we'll, we'll, it'll come up as we go through the message. What is good? And what's good is winning. See, that was the, Charlie Sheen got that one right, okay? <laughs> it's good winning. But God's, God's people win. We also discover faith in God and how powerful that is. But it also, as we think about the world, we, we come to that question, what's wrong? What's broken in the world? Well, there's a war going on. We'll talk about that in a second, all right? We've got to stop living like we're not at war. And then what's next? Well, God's people win. We'll get to that at the end, okay? So let's get back into the story of uh, David and Goliath, the disciples' worldview. We've looked at everything that can be known. I, I just want to begin it with this thought. I want to remind you, yes, a disciple looks at the world differently, and that differently, that view is aggressive. Everybody say aggressive. Aggressive. Did any, so I went to school back in the Flintstone era, you know, and the cheerleaders, for, I played football. I was the left side of the line. <laughs> and the cheerleaders would have that cheer. Be aggressive. Be, be aggressive. <laughs> that disc is burned as well. 
loved it. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing and forceful men lay hold of it. There is no war going on between countries. There is no race war. There is no war between liberals and conservatives. There is a war between light and dark. There is a war between God's people and the people of darkness, the enemy's people. There, there is a, a war going on between heaven and, in a sense, those who are destined for hell. And one of the things that destroys our mentality and eats our peace alive is that what we think is our worldview is broken, and we think that we really live in a world at peace, and we're just struggling with some problems here and there. That is not what's going on. It's what it looks like is going on. But what we don't understand is we have a legitimate enemy, a powerful enemy, who really wants us dead. Not, not, not hurt, not inconvenienced, not, not somehow ruined for life, dead. Now I know you're like, man, that's really extreme. You are totally bumming me out. Until you know the situation you are actually living in every day, you are never going to be able to step up to the victory that rises above it every day. We have to awaken to the reality and stop pretending like we are the cause of all of our problems. You're the cause of some of them. I'm not going to say you're not. But we're not the cause of all of them. We have a lot of things going on in the world. We've been lied to. We live in a world at war. And in that war, you're a warrior. You're a warrior. Men, women, boys, girls. To me, this is my favorite part of Christianity, actually. Um, I grew up in that, that churchified stream, you know, where good men went to church, and they were nice, and they kept the peace. And I'm glad that things are changing because we need some rowdy troublemakers. Don't we? I mean, really? Isn't, am I going to get in trouble for that? I don't care. I think I need to be a rowdy troublemaker. I mean, it's time to get into this warrior mentality. What does God say? Final word. Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on all of God's armor so that you'll be able to stand firm against all the strategies of the devil. Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Pretty much captures something very important to what it means to be a warrior. Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. You don't have to be the best debater on the team. You don't have to be the strongest guy in the room. You need to be mighty in the Lord and in His mighty power. But you're a warrior in the war, so let's wrap our heads around that. Because we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies. You're not fighting your wife or your husband. You're not fighting your boss. You're not fighting the lawyers. You're not fighting the liberals or the conservatives. You're not fighting. Whoever you think you're fighting is flesh and blood. It's not them. But against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world. Weird. The unseen world. I wish I had time to dig into that. But I'm, Against mighty powers in the dark world. Against evil spirits in the heavenly places. So every worldview we talk about is going to be pivotal. But this one's critical in the sense that until you understand the situation... You cannot live in the victory. Okay? You can live in victory. This is why Christians should be happy. 
because we are victorious over the situation. But not if we're going to live in that blissful ignorance and pretend like nothing is going on when something is definitely going on. Aggressive warriors in a war. war. So back to Samuel. So if we're going to be in this war, we're going to fight, and we've got to prepare for battle. I forgot to turn on my timer, so good deal. i got all the time in the world. <laughs> First Samuel 17. <laughs> uh, you know, I probably should set this up. King Saul, he's kind of battle-hardened. Yeah, he's in his own strength, but he's not a wimp. He is when it comes to this Pharisee, but not in general. And he's in his office. And then they bring in this teenage boy, little pimple-covered thing. You say, that's not in the text. Well, play with, we'll just play with it a little bit. <laughs> this young boy comes in, 17, 18 years of age, they think. Walks in, and here's what he says. <laughs> I could see one of my sons saying something like this. I think I said this to my dad, something like this. Anyway, don't worry about this Philistine. <laughs> I'll go fight him. I watched Rambo last week. <laughs> King's response is perfect for us old folks. Don't be ridiculous. <laughs> Saul said, there's no way you can fight this Philistine and possibly win. You're only a boy, and he's been a man of war since his youth. So you're seeing this scenario play out. But David persisted. I've been taking care of my father's sheep and goats, he said. Oh, that's good. When a lion or a bear comes to steal a lamb from the flock, I go after it with a club and rescue the lamb from its mouth. And if the animal turns on me, I catch it by the jaw and club it to death. That's, that's why I love the NLT right there. I mean, not many translations have club it to death in them, you know. I've done this to lions and bears, and I'll do it to this pagan Philistine too, for he's defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the claws of the lion and the bear will rescue me from the Philistine. Man, this, this kid's nuts. He's off his cracker, man. Watch out for the crazy guy. Because the crazy guy who's crazy about Jesus is a threat to the enemy. So what I want you to see here is as we think about, what we're thinking about is preparing for battle. I want you to see how I hear this child, this kid. He remembers what God has done. Think about this. He remembers what God has done. Now, say, well, that's no big deal. It is a big deal because we always forget what God has done. We always forget how God has delivered us in the past. Think about David. He's, he's got a, a lion and a bear attacking. Apparently this happened on multiple situations, okay? Do you think that David's like, I know we like to spiritualize everything that comes out of the Bible, but I'm telling you, the Bible is a straightforward book and does not over-spiritualize things. Do you think David's like, dear Lord, there's a bear attacking my flock, and I need to know if it's your will For Pastor Michael Longfellow. <laughs> no. Bear, flock, go. No, no prayer, just go. And here's the thing, though. He, God, he goes through and he wins the battle. But who does he give credit to the battle? God. 
He knew God gave him the battle. Now, I mean, he didn't say it was an easy battle. He didn't say it was a light battle. He didn't say he just walked in there and the bear just fell over dead. No, he had to club it to death. There was some aggression, aggressive, because disciples are aggressive. There's some aggression toward the bear, and so he acted out. And when it was over, he goes, God delivered me from the bear. I fought with my hands, and God got in my hands. God delivered me from the bear. It could have went wrong a thousand different ways, but it didn't. Because God delivered me. He remembered that. Now think about the nation of Israel. How, how good of a job did they do remembering God's goodness to them? Not so great. God delivers them from Egypt. Ten plagues. Splits a sea. Shekinah glory of God. Center of the camp. Water from a rock. Bread from heaven. Jericho walls fall down. They defeat all their enemies in the Canaan land. Over and over again. What do they focus on? Well, we're hungry. We don't have any food. They don't ask God for food. They just gripe that they don't have food. They don't ask God for water. They just gripe that the water's bad. They don't turn to God. when Later, they wanted hamburgers, and, and they, they didn't have hamburgers. They don't say, God, we'd like some Big Macs delivered. They just complain that there were no Big Macs. So God sent them Kentucky Fried Chicken. <laughs> it's true. You can read about it. Well, it wasn't Kentucky Fried, but it was, you know, on and on and on. Then as they carry on, it's that complaining killed them. I mean, literally killed them. And it kills us too. And we get in a circumstance. And rather than sing the praises of the God who's delivered us from all the prior circumstances, we start complaining about how bad this circumstance is. And we start, we give the enemy our vocal cords. And we start whining and complaining and getting dis discontent. And what we actually end up doing, because, I don't know if you know this or not, but the breath of the Creator is in you. The breath you breathe is Creator breath. The stuff that said stars, light, mountains, atmosphere, it's in you. We create our future all the time by the words that we say. So oh, that, sounds, that sounds too positive. No, no. I'm going to go to college. And you go to college. What happened? You spoke and you acted. Your words preceded your actions. We do it all the time. There's nothing magic about it. It's the reality of human existence. And so when we start to complain and criticize and start leaning into everything that's wrong in the situation, we're giving glory to lies. Your circumstances may be facts. I'm not saying they can't be, that you can deny them. They may be facts, but that does not mean that they are true. There's a difference between fact and truth. We all know facts can be presented in a way that is malicious and deceitful. And that's exactly what our heart can do with our circumstances if we're not careful. And so when we echo that kind of things, we, we hurt ourselves. So here's something we can learn from a teenager. And you're suddenly going, learn from a teenager. I don't think I can do that. Yes, you can. <laughs> remember. Remember to remember. God's good. He loves you. You are blessed. Everybody in the house is blessed. Amen. You are blessed. God's favor is on you. You're a warrior. You have everything you need to take out every giant in your life. You have everything you need to take out every giant in your life. 
Have you got a scripture for that, Michael? I do. <laughs> I got one. It's awesome. First Corinthians 3.22, second part. Everything belongs to you. You belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to God. <laughs> My Lord and Savior ain't no loser. I'm in him. He's in the Father. It doesn't get any more solid than that, man. And so we need to start celebrating those things rather than worrying about them. So the story goes on. So prepare for battle. Remember, verse 39, David goes into Saul's office a little deeper and starts getting into the wardrobe closet for armor. David, Saul wants to send a pimply-faced teenager out there, but he wants to protect him as much as possible, which is so weird. David put on the armor, strapped the sword over it, took a step or two to see what it was like. For he had never worn such things before. Didn't need armor for bears, I guess. I don't know. I can't go in these, he protested to Saul. I'm not used to them, so David took them off. So now you got this teenager, and uh, he's never worn armor before, so he's going to go out and fight the biggest dude of the other guy's army. And Saul's trying to protect him as much as possible. And David says, ah, not going to work for me. I'm not used to it. It's not a good idea. So what does he do? Well, this sounds good. Verse 45. Um, you come to me with a sword, spear, and javelin. He's talking to Goliath. But I come to you in my armor. In the name of the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you defied. He didn't need Saul's armor because he was out there in the name of his God. So if you're going to prepare for battle, you need to remember things rightly. And you need to wear armor. But not Saul's armor. Not Saul's armor. What's Saul's armor? Saul's armor is the stuff that makes sense. <laughs> I know that really messes with you. You're going to go fight a giant who's nine feet tall, and he's got a sword and a spear. It makes sense to wear the thickest armor you can and maybe get a little tank alongside, right? <laughs> but that's not what David does. Because God's kids don't fight like the world's kids. We wear a different kind of armor. Paul said, we are human, but we don't wage war as humans do. We don't fight like the Saul's in our life. We shouldn't be ignorant of the enemy's tools, but neither should we use them. In fact, there's a different kind of armor that God's kids wear. And it works really well. It says, here's your armor. It's in Ephesians chapter 6. Stand your ground. This is a continuation of the verse we read earlier. Stand your ground, putting on the belt of truth and the body armor of God's righteousness. For shoes, put on the peace that comes from the good news so that you'll be fully prepared. Then he says, in addition to all this, hold up the shield of faith to stop the fire arrows of the devil and put on salvation as a helmet. Truth, righteousness, the gospel, faith, and salvation. That's your armor. Truth, righteousness, faith, the gospel, and salvation. That's what we put on every day. That's what sustains us. Truth. There are a lot of facts in the world. Christians should be armored with truth. It's a different thing. Where do you get truth? Well, Jesus Christ is truth. God's word is truth. So we need to have our minds just basically immersed in truth. And so every day we should prepare with the truth. Every day we should prepare with righteousness. Whose righteousness? Well, it's God's righteousness. The body armor of God's righteousness. You and I are, will never accomplish righteousness in Saul's strength, in our own strength. Do you understand that? 
Righteousness really comes out of your life when you trust in God's righteousness. It begins to be displayed in your actions. Spiritual realities have natural consequences and implications. And so that righteousness comes from God. The gospel. I love the gospel. And I cannot wait for the day that the church at large begins to embrace the gospel in all of its power. We're doing an okay job in some ways of trying to get the gospel to the lost world. But I think the saved world needs it just as bad. I think Christians need the gospel just as badly as the, uh, the unknown world, the world out there doesn't have it. Because the gospel is for everything. The good news. He says for, feet, for shoes have on the, the shoes, it's the peace that comes from the good news. Peace comes from the gospel. And so if you have anxiety in your life, you don't have a stress problem. You actually have a gospel problem. Wrap your head around that for a minute. Faith. Faith. That as a shield up against all those things that come against us and salvation. So we have armor. It's available to us. Yeah, it's not the world's armor. It doesn't work like the world's armor does. It doesn't even make any sense for a little shepherd boy to go out there with a staff and, and a sling, and that's all he's got. But when you're wrapped in God, things change. So you've got to wear your armor, but then you also got to carry your weapons. Now, I want you to hear these weapons because this is important. Because you may be losing some of the battles in your life because you don't realize what the weapons are. Okay? So there are two that Paul gives us in the text. Two, not one, two. He says, take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Now, we're all about that one. If you've been to church very much, you've heard the temptation of Jesus, you're all about, man, the Word of God. Let's use the Word of God like a weapon. And boy, we do, and family reunions are a blast. (laughs) But verse 18 adds a second weapon. Pray in the Spirit at all times and on every occasion. Stay alert and be persistent in your prayers for all believers everywhere. Do you see that between the Word of God and the sword of the Spirit, God is establishing an advance, an aggressive approach, weapons where I am receiving from God and I am taking what I receive through His Word and through prayer and I'm waging battle and war with it. One of the key things to winning any battle is communication from headquarters to the front lines. Isn't it? And isn't it true that often in our battles in life, we have no idea what the orders are. We have no idea what's coming from headquarters. We're just in the thick of it, trying to survive. And if we could learn to rest in the Word of God, to get into God's Word, to love it, love it. I don't know how you have a disciple's worldview without a love for God's Word. I'm not trying to insult you, but you, you just have to love it. And if you're, and I want you to know, always here to help. If you're at a place right now, you're like, I don't know, the Bible's hard to understand. I get that. I've been there. I've been in that. I call it the cornflake season. I don't, I don't know if cornflakes are around anymore, but you know, it's that. You ever had dry cornflakes? Oh my gosh, that's just awful. 
and it, it's just better to fast. It really is. Um, but I, I've had those cornflake seasons where it really wasn't that, you know, I didn't love the Word. But I tell you what, the more, the closer you get to your Father, the more you understand that this Word is written to you, not just about you. It's written for you, too. I mean, a lot of times we read the Word for everybody else. You do that? I do sometimes. I'm not, I can't lie, I do sometimes. Well, they need to hear this. My, here, honey, you need to read Ephesians 5 right now. Okay, that was an inside joke, but Ephesians 5 is like telling wives to submit to their husbands, okay? So you need to read this right now. And she turns it right about and said, well, you missed the last verse, dude. No wonder we're afraid. You feel like you are out in the field, abandoned by your army, just trying to survive. Guys, the Word of God and prayer in the Spirit. Prayer, And that may scare some of you. Ah, praying in the Spirit. He's getting all weird on me. I was weird before. You just didn't notice. <laughs> Do you think Jesus, the Bible, most theologians think Jesus prayed about four hours a day. That's what their estimates. I don't know where they get that from, but still, it's probably not far off. Four hours a day. What do you think he prayed? Lord, I need you to straighten out Peter. That's the dumbest boy I ever saw in my life. <laughs> Lord, we don't have enough money to feed 5,000. I don't know what we're going to do. Lazarus is dead. How, what, Father, what are we going to do about that one? See? You, you think that's how his prayer time went? What do you think he talked to his father about? And if your guess is everything... You're right. Talk to him about everything. My point is, Jesus' prayer life with the Father wasn't just a long laundry list of requests. Because a prayer life like that, because your prayer life is your relationship life with the Father. Do you understand this? How you relate to prayer in the Bible is all about your relationship with the Father. How would your relationship be with your spouse if all it was was questions? Honey, would you take care of the laundry today? I need a shirt iron. Would you take care of that for me? Would you make sure the kids don't kill themselves today? Would you, and on and on and on and on. How, what kind of relationship would you have? Well, it would sink. It would not be good. And sooner or later, she's going to hand that list back to you, so don't do that. <laughs> relationship with God in prayer is, is, this is a weapon. It's a weapon. I don't have time, but I'm going to do it anyway. I'll just take the time. So, um, I was reading a book, I can't remember who it was at the moment, and he was talking about the atmosphere of a room. And he was, actually it was, it was Lance Walnut was who it was, and it was a sermon. And he used, he's, a, he's not an official preacher, he's a businessman who follows God and he starts businesses for Christ. But Lance Walnut used to work in the corporate world in New York City, and he said he would go through sections of his company because he was kind of up the corporate food chain a bit and he would he'd go through sex and there would be like he didn't know what it was at the time when he first encountered it he just thought he was having 
sin. He was just being tempted to sin. So he would go through the classroom that was all like the call services department, all these younger people, and all of a sudden he'd have thoughts about lust and all these kind of things. He'd go into the big guy's offices, and then he would would just have experiences where he was getting greedy. He felt like he wanted more money and those kinds of things. And every different place he went to in the company, he began to realize that there was a spirit in each of those departments. And as he realized that he's talking to the Father about it, and he says, God, this, I don't know what to do. There's all these spirits. Just, there's greed, and there's lust, and there's, there's just uh, you know, all broken relationships and hurt people. I don't know what to do. And God says, that's why you're there. You're the thermostat in the room. Change the atmosphere by who you are. It's so easy to preach at people, guys. But preachers aren't really effective. You want to help people really change. It's not what you do through preaching. It's who you are when you preach. It's your being. That's what carries the power, is that relationship with God. Yeah, there may be a lot of giants in your work environment too. But guess what? That's why God put you there. That's why God put you in this community. Yeah, we have enemies that we're supposed to beat. We're human. But we don't wage war as humans do. We use God's mighty weapons, not worldly weapons, to knock down the strongholds of human reasoning and to destroy false arguments. We don't fight like everybody else. We fight different. We fight with power. Paul put it this way in Corinthians 4.20. He says the kingdom of God is not just a lot of talk. Oh, it's living by God's power. Amen. Man, I'm under conviction <laughs> that a pimply-faced teenager could stand before an orphan king and have more wisdom, more courage, more strength than any man on the field because he understood one thing. God's power is bigger than bears and lions and moron giants who are stupid enough to poke a finger at God. By the way, do you think God was in heaven going, ooh? (laughs) That's a big giant. No, God was in heaven going, hey, 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 call up David. Get the teenager. This will be good. This will be good. Prepare for battle and then learn to fight like a shepherd. So he picked up five smooth stones from a stream, put them in his shepherd's bag, and then armed only with his shepherd's staff and sling, he started across the valley to fight the Philistine. Oh, what a picture this is. I wish I had time to go in the full story because there is some trash talk that is awesome, but I'm jumping right into verse 47. So he goes and he takes him and... uh, David replies back after some trash talk. He says, And everyone assembled here will know that the Lord rescues his people, but not with a sword and a spear. This is the Lord's battle, and he will give you to us. What a picture. So, learn to fight. Fight for what? Let's fight for three things at least. Let's fight first for your heart. Let's start there. Guard your heart, because it directs everything you do, is what the, the writer of Proverbs or what Solomon said. And you need to first wrap your head around who you are, your identity. If you're going to be a warrior, you need to understand that I'm a warrior. 
I'm a son of God. I'm here to be in a fight. I'm not here to cower and be, and until Jesus runs the final rescue mission. I actually don't like that eschatology or that end-time view. I, I, I like the idea where we fight to the finish. And then Jesus comes in and stomps them down and finishes everything for us. You are holy. You are redeemed. You are faultless. You say, well, you haven't seen how I live this week. It doesn't matter how you live this week. It matters that Jesus Christ died again, ascended to heaven, came back in the Holy Spirit to live inside of you, and now you are immersed in him. That's what baptism is about. You being immersed into, pushed into, wrapped around, submerged in Jesus Christ. So when God looks at you, he sees righteousness and all those things. You say, well, I don't feel very righteous. Well, maybe if you start believing that you're righteous, instead of being afraid that you're unrighteous, you will become a righteous person by faith. I mean, why did Paul write the just shall live by faith? Amen. Oh, man. I, I, the church, this is a theology that drives me a little crazy. We are saved by faith, and then we try to be sanctified by works because we are thick-headed. <laughs> the same faith that saves is the same faith that makes us holy. You are kings. You are priests. You are winners. You are worth the cross. I know you're sitting there going, no, nobody's worth the cross. You are worth the cross because God says you're worth the cross. Not because you earned it, not because God looked and said, oh, they're truly special. God did look at you and say you're truly special, but that came from him, not you. You understand? You're worth all that. Begin to get these identities in your head, this understanding that God has restored everything Adam lost plus he restored Eden. The walks in the garden are back. It's back on. Uh, anyway, so I could dwell on it, but I won't. Let's get into identity, your identity, know who you are, your passion. What are you here for? Man, it, guys, don't let the world and the circumstances, the enemy, just kill your passion in life. Live in your life afraid to do anything. In fact, we live in a world that's terrified of failure today. And do you know what the number one, I mean, the only way to success is through failure? Do you understand that? The, only, the people who, who make all the money, have the big companies, all that kind of stuff, do you know they failed a lot? In fact, John, uh, John oh, one of the Johns, there's so many of them, he said, if you want to increase your rate of success, increase your rate of failure. And so we, we need to stop worrying about that and push into our passion. And, and who, what kind of passion is in this room, you know? You know, right now we're trying to encourage folks to step up and, and serve through our children. It's exciting, the potential there. It excites me as a pastor to see what could happen when people step into that. Because some of you actually have a passion for it, and you may not know it yet. There are passions I have in life I didn't know it when I was younger. And so I'd, I love to see God's people live out their passion, not just, not just serve. Be willing to serve. Be willing to learn. But... Live your passion. And then your faith. Man, God is good. Let's try it again. God is good. And all the time. He's not stingy. Did you know that? He's not stingy. He's not up in heaven going, man, I sure, I hope we got enough pennies to get through March. As he finances the battle between light and dark, God's not up there going, man, I'm... Hope we got enough to pay all the pastors. That's a fear I've had. 
I support feed the children. My, my children are hungry. <laughs> He's not the God of barely enough is all I'm trying to say. He's the God who blesses, who likes to bless. Now, I mean, if you, if you had a son or a daughter, uh, and, and many of you do, don't you like to bless them? Now, you don't like to pay all their bills for them, right? You know, you wanted, you, when they were at home, you tried to equip them so they could be self-supporting, okay? And so, so paying all their bills isn't fun, but just blessing them, just taking them out, buying them a really nice dinner, giving them a gift of something that would really bless, that's fun. That's how your father likes to treat you. So stop thinking he's stingy. He's not. He's a good father. All right? He blesses. He overwhelms us with goodness. So if we're going to learn how to fight, we got to fight like a shepherd. We've got to fight for our heart. And second, we've got to fight for the flock. Everybody in the room has a flock. It may be your family, your household. It may just be your spouse. maybe your children. It may be a class you teach, a small group you have. It may be a business you fight for. It may be employees you fight for. Everybody's got a flock. Look what happens when David fought for his flock. <coughs> Excuse me. It says, when the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they turned and ran. And then what happened? Then the men of Israel and Judah gave a great shout of triumph and rushed after the Philistines. Here's what I need you to hear, and I need you to hear it well. Your testimony, your fight, you stepping up to face your giant, you never know that that might not set an entire army free for victory. Somebody could be watching you. It could be someone close to you. They could see you stand up to your Goliath. Watch that Goliath go down, and they could be encouraged. And they could take all the Philistines. Have you ever thought that, have you ever had a time in your life where it seems like you're just surrounded by enemies? Have you ever wondered if maybe God wasn't setting up your enemies for their own destruction? Think about this. He did that for the nation of Israel. He got all the enemies to band together as allies to come and attack the nation of Israel as they're taking the Canaan land just so God could wipe them all out at one shot. It was way more efficient. Maybe that's what God's doing for you right now. You're sitting there going, man, you don't understand. I'm having problems with the job, having problems with the marriage, it's tax season, my car's got a flat, blah, 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 and on and on and on. And you know what God's doing? He's just grouping up your giants so it only takes one rock to take them all. David went into that battle with five rocks. I don't think he thought it was going to miss. I think he just went because he was prepared to stay all day in battle. There were four other brothers. Some people say maybe he was going to get Goliath's relatives. I have no idea. I just know this. He went out there to at least take down one giant, but he didn't intend to leave until the battle was won. His determination set an army free. That teenager became a king that day. That's why Saul started hating him almost immediately after this. Because he stepped up to the one thing that makes a king in God's book. Faith. He just believed in God. Guys, there's a war going on. Can I have the worship team come up? There's a war going on, and you're a warrior in the war. Now, a lot of times we sound like the grouchy brother whose pimply-faced brother shows up and we start fussing at him. Sometimes we sound like the scared soldier who's terrified by the giants that are out there. Sometimes we sound like the orphan Saul who just doesn't know what to do. But I want to encourage you today to fight like a shepherd. 
to realize it's not about how smart you are. It's not about how much money you have, how many resources are available to you in the natural. It's about wearing the right armor. It's about truth and righteousness, peace of the gospel, salvation and faith. It's about carrying the right weapons, the Word of God and prayer in the Spirit. We need to start looking at prayer as a weapon. From a personal standard, I look at the country I live in and I get very frustrated. You probably do too. But then I get a little frustrated myself because I have access to the highest throne room of all at any time. And I ask myself, am I praying? Am I, pr- am I using my prayer in the Spirit, entering into the heavenlies to pray for my country? It's one thing to gripe about your opponents. But what would happen? What would happen if God saved them, awakened them spiritually, and they began to live for God in their high roles? What would happen then? Man, if you had a few million Christians praying that kind of prayer, I wonder what could happen in this country I live in. The dragon lost the battle. And his angels were forced out of heaven. This great dragon, the ancient serpent, called the devil or Satan, the one deceiving the world, was thrown down to the earth with all his angels. And they've defeated him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives so much that they were afraid to die. Let's stand. In my battles, my battles, this is how I fight my battles, this is how I fight my battles.